Hello, my name is Michael Albert, and I'm the host of the podcast Revolution Z. This is our 52nd episode. This time we focus on journalism. The idea of journalism is not overly complex. Societies involve huge ranges of activity and possibility. Each day events occur and processes unfold. The quality of our lives depends in two senses on the news of these events and processes. First, there is the simple benefit of knowing and vicariously enjoying or feeling solidarity with or otherwise partaking of information about events beyond the relatively narrow scope of our daily lives. If there is a new insight, achievement, or benefit, or if there is new suffering, struggle, challenge, or possibility, whether we are talking about scientists unearthing news about human origins, or about cosmic foundations, or about inventions scaling new heights of speed or size, or about a disease or a natural disaster, or about a new medicine or energy provision, or about a new national policy, interpersonal conflict, social possibilities, or social problems, people benefit from knowing about it. There is curiosity, there is vicarious pleasure, there is edification. But second, what happens in the world and knowledge of it can also affect what we can do, wish to do, or need to do because of the way events change the world around us or because of the ways events call on us to do things to affect conditions, policies, choices, and other matters. The second point refers to news, of course, but also to analysis of events, trends, and possibilities and to what is called commentary. It refers, that is, to everything that is included in a good news program, news site, or newspaper. By journalism, in other words, we refer to information transferred from people who investigate and accumulate data and who also have time to think about it and make predictions, evaluations, and judgments about it to other folks. In a capitalist economy, media that conveys information, such as newspapers, periodicals, TV, websites, podcasts, and radio, are, like other corporations, typically profit-centered firms with corporate divisions of labor and with products to sell to consumers. Oddly, however, in many cases, what media institutions are selling isn't always precisely what it seems. Information firms sell information to their consumers, yes, but more so they sell their consumers to advertisers. And the information that flows is a kind of means to the end of advertisements. And as such, it is often highly contoured to purposes other than meeting consumers' needs. In examining capitalism's journalistic institutions, Edward Herman and Noam Chomsky developed what they called a propaganda model to explain its main features and operations. What is the propaganda model and how does it work? Herman answers his own question by telling us that the model's crucial structural factors arise from the fact that, he quotes, the dominant media are firmly embedded in the market system. Newspapers, periodicals, TV news, radio, and the rest are all profit-seeking businesses, Herman tells us. They are owned by rich people or companies, and they are funded largely by advertisers, who are also profit-seeking entities who want their ads to appear in support of selling environment. Media institutions, Herman goes on, also lean heavily on government and major business firms as information sources. Operating in society, both efficiency and political considerations, as well as overlapping interests, cause a certain degree of solidarity to prevail among the government, major media, and other corporate businesses. Like all institutions, media are affected not only by internal requisites, but also by demands and impositions from without. 
Herman says, government and large non-media business firms are best positioned and sufficiently wealthy to pressure the media with threats of withdrawal of advertising or TV licenses with libel suits and other direct and indirect modes of attack. Internal profit-seeking and external stability-maintaining factors are linked together, reports Herman, reflecting, he continues, the multi-leveled capability of government and powerful business entities and collectives, for instance, the Business Roundtable, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, the vast number of well-heeled industry lobbies and front groups, to exert power over the flow of information. Chomsky and Herman's propaganda model emphasizes five factors involved in constraining and determining media output. Ownership, advertising, sourcing, flack, and anti-communist ideology. The last of the five factors was highly influential at the time when the model was developed. Nowadays, it could better be called prevailing ideology, to make the list more general, or it could be called anti-terrorist ideology or neoliberal ideology, to make the list more timely. The five factors, as Herman expressed it, work as filters through which information must pass and that individually and often in additive fashion greatly influence media choices. The model stresses, he tells us, that the filters work mainly by the independent action of many individuals and organizations, and these frequently, but not always, have a common view of issues and similar interests. In short, says Herman, the propaganda model describes a decentralized and non-conspiratorial market system of control and processing, although at times the government or one or more private actors may take initiatives and mobilize coordinated elite handling of an issue. The point is, Herman reports, in contemporary society, journalism and information are constrained by capitalist economic dictates and a concordance of interest between the state and other powerful social institutions. That journalism reflects an imposition of content by corporate and state power is evident every day all around us. In American media, for example, even ignoring the insanity of Trumpist dynamics, news is routinely delimited by what is called contextual spin, verbal and visual coloration, and contextual biasing. Some matters are emphasized to the point of endless repetition. Some are excluded to the point of literal disappearance. Much is misstated. As one analyst, Danny Schechter of Media Watch, put it in his book by the same name, as a result, the more you watch, the less you know. In America, as a result, it is not unusual for people to believe what amounts to fairy tales about the very issues and information of the broader society and even their own daily lives. The average citizen may believe the government budget spent on poor people's welfare dwarfs the government budget spent on armaments and other subsidies to rich corporations, or that more foreign aid and police and military aid goes to countries that are free and their care for their citizens than to countries that are repressive and routinely violate the rights of their citizens. Or average citizens may believe that crime is rising when it is falling, or that guns in the home protect citizens when they, in fact, add to violence, or that danger from street thugs should be their main worry, or that blacks receive an unreasonable percentage of social aid at the expense of whites, or that Iran or Iraq or earlier Nicaragua, Libya or Grenada are serious threats to U.S. citizens that must be stopped lest our population suffer. Here is the way Noam Chomsky summarized the information problem back when Bush won office. Chomsky said, An economic study that appeared right before the presidential election reports that less than 30% of the population was aware of the positions of the candidates on major issues, though 86% knew the name of George Bush's dog. 
The general fest of propaganda, Chomsky went on, gets through nicely, however. When asked to identify the largest element of the federal budget, he continues, less than one-fourth give the correct answer, military spending. Almost half select foreign aid, which barely exists. The second choice is welfare, chosen by one-third of the population, who also far overestimate the proportion that goes to blacks and to child support. And though the question was not asked, continues Chomsky, virtually none are likely to be aware that defense spending is in large measure welfare for the rich. Chomsky adds that another result of the study is that more educated sectors are more ignorant, which ought not be surprising, since they are the main targets of indoctrination. Bush supporters, who are best educated, scored lowest overall. Due to the tireless and relentless efforts of dissidents, it is no longer the case, at least in my perception, particularly among the less wealthy and less powerful sectors, that there is as much confusion about the basic character of U.S. society and life as there has been in decades past. Though the problem is still extensive, especially in times of crisis, such as when the government is building up to a war. And the dictates of capitalist journalism have only intensified another problem that more than offsets somewhat diminished public confusion. The feeling on the part of the public that the horrible problems they perceive are a part of history and society that cannot be avoided. There may be more understanding of what is wrong than there was in the past. And at some deep level, everyone may even realize that everything is broken. But there is also much more cynicism about the possibility of things becoming sane and whole. Margaret Thatcher's dictum that there is no alternative is believed because what the media reports and ignores and what it ridicules and celebrates daily hammers home the viewpoint that horrible problems are a fact of life. So how would media differ in a participatory society? First, in a participatory society, within journalistic and information-handling institutions, there would be no hierarchies of wealth and power. Those working in the industry, whether writing or otherwise, would not occupy dominant and subordinate positions that they rationalize and justify. They would work at balanced job complexes. They would have self-managing power. They would earn for socially valued work according to the duration, intensity, and onerousness of their labors. They would have no structural reason to see themselves as systemically morally better or worse than others, and no hierarchical position to defend. They would have no elite class allies and advantages to hide or to defend or to enlarge against subordinate classes. In other words, participatory economics would remove the key biasing variables present in capitalism by eliminating personalities and consciousnesses that are systematically, collectively bent on protecting and defending elite interests at the expense of subordinates. In participatory socialism, or participatory society, whichever you prefer, there are no privileged classes. Second, the education that people experience in a participatory society would not curb their curiosity, nor systematically bias their knowledge of history and social relations. In this dimension, too, there would be no social structural force bending people's experiences against the honest portrayal and assessment of events. There would be no myopic and elitist education affecting the work of those writing or disseminating information. Third, in a participatory society, there would be no sale of audience to advertisers. Media workplaces would not seek surplus in any other form, either. The media wouldn't sell audience to producers. They would amass, generate, and disseminate information, analysis, and vision. The media's motive would be to communicate clearly and usefully. Incomes would be earned for work that is socially valued by free and capable audiences. Media workers would earn at the same rate as everyone else throughout the economy. 
Finally, there would be no centers of disproportionate power that would bend events and outcomes to their will and that would compel coverage and commentary to accord with external requirements. There would be no reason to expect ideological uniformity, however. Instead, in a good society, with a participatory economy and other innovative structures, different people would no doubt often have different views, and sometimes there would be alignments of groups that have socially contrary beliefs and desires. And no doubt journalists and other information workers will sometimes have conflicting views as well. Information consumers would not only sometimes prefer magazines or shows more about science than about sports or vice versa, but also sometimes have taste-seeking writers who share values and conceptual frameworks that they respect, rather than writers with views they disagree with or find abhorrent. Values of journalists and of media institutions would certainly affect what they cover, judge, and propose, and how they would do all three and why a given individual would favor one commentator over another. The difference in a participatory society would not be that conflict disappears, far from it. The difference would be that the roots of conflict are in honestly different perceptions and values, not in structural biases imposed by massive centers of power and wealth. Still, there is another special feature that would most likely characterize participatory media. Favoring diversity would imply valuing dissident views and minority opinions. Participatory media would be expected to allot space and resources for viewpoints that are not widely or are even only marginally supported. In fact, the logic and methodology of fostering diverse information flow would be not much different than the logic and methodology of research and exploration in any field. Just as consumers negotiating with producers can know that they want to allot significant amounts of productive potential to innovative investigations of technology, science, and art on grounds that work that isn't understood yet and that hasn't yet demonstrated its intrinsic worth is worthy in any event because in some total such work generates what will be worthy in the future. So, too, consumers can understand and support the importance of diverse and as yet individually seemingly unworthy information sources on grounds of the need for overall innovation and exploration and continual diversity of content. Participatory journalists, for want of a better descriptor, may make mistakes, of course. They will misunderstand events at times, or they will miss things that are important, or they will exaggerate things that aren't important. One participatory journalist will see things one way, another will have a different perception. The two might often be at odds, and not both fully correct. Readers would pick and choose their sources, of course, and time and experience would clarify accuracy and sometimes even values or competence. But the key point is, variations would far less often manifest external pressures or even internally generated inclinations aimed to please particular constituencies regardless of evidence and logic. Bias-induced errors would be far more unusual than now, because in a participatory society there is no income or power motive to bend people's perceptions. There would be no way to parlay readership or popularity into income or power. The impetus in journalism would be to capture reality accurately and to comment on it wisely. It would not be to please wealthy consumers as compared to less wealthy consumers, or to please owners or to please those who monopolize empowering work. It isn't that people would all agree, or always be brilliant, or always escape personal habits or biases. It is that such problems would not be systemic and would therefore be far less damaging. 
In other words, the really key change is that even when bias does rear its head, it would have no particular structural longevity and would not be replicated widely. Bias due to the idiosyncratic views of particular writers rather than due to socially imposed interests emanating from structural centers of power is far less likely to spread throughout the media industry unless due to widespread honest error. In that respect, participatory journalism and information handling becomes much more like science at its best. It would be undertaken without commercial pressures, and the test of evidence and logic would aggressively curb escalating divergences from truth and from sensibility in reporting and analyzing what is and what isn't the case. A participatory New York Times would print all the news, all the analysis, all the prescription that its many writers choose to focus on in a self-managing manner with its resources governed by social negotiation in accord with the population's desires for news, entertainment, diversity, and dissent. And beyond the participatory New York Times would be diverse other sources of information, including no doubt some that operate privately via volunteerism. In our world, each writer always risks losing employment for being insufficiently profitable. In defense, each becomes acclimated to the constraints of reproducing hierarchies of power and wealth as defined by owners and editors who try to sell maximum receptive audience to advertisers. But in a participatory society, each writer examines events and conveys what he or she finds important in light of feedback regarding the needs and desires of very diverse constituencies of readers, listeners, and viewers, as well as in accord with the collective constraints of budgets and the desire to stay in high regard among fellow workers. Will all periodicals and TV shows operate identically? Not at all. Some will feature entertainment, others news, and others commentary or investigation. Some will feature sports, others international relations, economy, polity, family issues, science, and so on. But even more, a participatory society wouldn't dictate the internal decisions of workplaces about their specific approaches to their labors or other priorities. Participatory socialism would dictate only that there will be workers' councils, self-managed decision-making, remuneration for duration, intensity, and onerousness of socially valued work, balanced job complexes, and participatory planning, all as we have outlined in prior episodes. Different media institutions, like different restaurants, research institutes, schools, playgrounds, distribution centers, hospitals, and assembly plants, would often have different ways of implementing these structures and of pursuing their endeavors. This is even more true for media, where product differentiation is greater than for many other domains, and the different choices different workers' councils favor will affect not only who wishes to work in which institutions, but who finds them a desirable source of information and insight. The main point is that in the future, as now, information media will remain part and parcel of the elaboration, protection, and correction of social practices and structures. What will change is the character of those practices and structures, which in turn will change the internal dynamics of the information media and their product. In sum, participatory society's requisites for working in and organizing media will naturally respect what are likely to be desirable media's needs regarding information product and process, and vice versa. Participatory economics is an information-friendly economy. Participatory socialism will be an information-friendly society. And I have to say, I hope some information-friendly listeners of this project who haven't yet decided to materially support Revolution Z will soon do so, so we can enlarge and otherwise improve our efforts. You can do this by visiting www.patreon.com slash revolutionz.
There are literally a tsunami of podcasts available. But how many of those focus on social vision and strategy at all, much less simultaneously emphasizing solidarity, diversity, equity, and self-management? Doesn't Revolution Z warrant your support? With 1,000 or so current frequent listeners, how do we get up to 2,000 or 5,000 or however many we can potentially involve? The answer must be by reaching more widely with commentary about Revolution Z. And how can we do that? I think only by those who do listen telling those who haven't yet listened what is available. Will you do that for Revolution Z? And that said, that requested, that urged, this is Michael Albert signing off for Revolution Z. Until next time.